This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis 2, verses 4 through 25. Genesis 2 can be found on page 2 of the Pew Bibles. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold that is in that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I ask that by your Spirit, you would give us ears to hear the voice of Christ in the preaching of the Word of Christ. For your glory, for our eternal good. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Most Sundays, I get to be home with my family after church for lunch, and 
there are some pretty typical topics of conversation like how many Cheerios did Abraham's teachers say he ate during nursery? For those of you who teach Abraham in nursery, I apologize. I asked John Mitchell what Bible story he heard in his chipmunks class, and he usually responds, I forgot. So for his teachers, I also apologize. But then I get around to asking our two oldest children, Georgia and Bethany, which Bible story their teacher taught them in Discovery. Bethany, our six-year-old, usually chimes in first, and her recounting of that day's Bible story is high on facts and low on details. And our eight-year-old, Georgia, dutifully listens to Bethany tell her version of the Bible story from Discovery, and then Georgia starts to fill in the blanks with some of the details that Bethany left out. And after they're both done, I have a pretty good sense of what they heard in their discovery class that day. Now, Bethany's version of that day's discovery lesson is like your first glance at a picture that has a lot of people in it. And George's version of that day's discovery lesson is like when you take that picture and you zoom in so that you can see who's in it and what kind of faces they're making and what they're wearing and where they were when the picture was taken. Same picture, two noticeably different impressions of it that you come away with. Now Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is kind of like a first glance version of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And today, we're going to zoom in on that very same picture that we saw last week. So when we do that, whose faces are you going to see? <laughs> what will they be wearing? Where is this picture being taken? What is that place like? And as you listen, consider this. What does the place and the people in it reveal about the God who made the heavens and the earth? And what does all of that reveal about your future and how you ought to think about it? Hopefully your Bibles are still open to Genesis chapter 2 where our brother Paul read from just a moment ago. I'd encourage you, if you haven't done it already, to open a Bible to Genesis chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please use one of our pew Bibles and then take it home with you. Be our guest. In verse 4 of Genesis 2, we have the first of 10 instances in Genesis of the phrase, these are the generations of, or something very much like it. I talked to you about this in my overview sermon a couple of weeks ago, how Moses, as he writes Genesis under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, means for the repetition of that mention of generations to serve as a kind of organizing structure for the book of, Gen for the book of Genesis to teach us how to anticipate the one who would fulfill the promises that God makes to his people in this book. Every other time in Genesis, when you see this phrase, these are the generations of, you have a person. So in chapter 5, these are the generations of 
Adam, later these are the generations of Noah, these are the generations of Isaac. Here, though, you don't have a person. What do we have in chapter 2 and verse 4? We have, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And I think that's because verse 4 is pulling a kind of double duty. First, this verse is cluing us in on the fact that we're going to see a unique creation take place today heaven and earth are going to come together if you please for the creation that we'll see here in chapter two so that indeed the creation that's the focus of this chapter turns out to be the generations of the heavens and the earth second verse four is as i say in your sermon outline a summary statement of god's creation of the heavens and the earth many an examiner of the scriptures has gotten off track when they start reading Genesis chapter 2, wrongly thinking that this chapter is a different, and even in the minds of some, a contradictory account of creation than we have in chapter 1. No, that's not what's going on at all. The very same creation that we saw created last week by God the Father through His Word, the Son, and through His Spirit, that same creation account is what's in view here in chapter 2. So why two creation accounts? Well, an excellent Old Testament scholar, Peter Gentry, has explained that the reason why Moses tells the creation account twice and in different ways is because to say the same thing twice in two different ways is a very Hebrew way of talking. You find this sort of thing all over the place in the Old Testament. We had an example of it in our call to worship from Psalm Chapter 8, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You hear how that's, that's the same thing, but it's communicated twice and in different ways. Later in that same psalm, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Same thing, communicated twice and in slightly different ways. Dr. Gentry says, it's like hearing something in stereo instead of just mono. You get a fuller sound. You get a, a fuller sense, a more vivid picture. And so that's what's going on here in verse 4. This verse is both letting us know that we're getting an additional version of the creation account that we saw last week, and it's letting us know that what's going to be the focus of this particular creation account, namely mankind, is the product, the generations of the coming together of the heavens and the earth. Now with that backdrop for the rest of our text in place, let's keep going here to verse 5 where we see the beginning of the account of the creation of Adam. And verses 5 and 6 provide the setting for Adam's creation in a way that anticipates later events in Genesis. And Moses tells us that Adam is created when there isn't yet the kind of plant life that would come from man's involvement in working the ground, what Moses refers to here in verse 5 as the bush of the field and the small plant of the field. This doesn't contradict chapter 1 where we learned that plant life was created on day 3 along with the waters being gathered together into seas and the dry land appearing. No, what's here in chapter 2, what's being referenced is the kind of plant life that comes from cultivation from the man working the ground. Do you see that at the end of verse 5? Why have these things not appeared yet? There was no man to work the ground. 
The text seems to indicate that the way the earth was watered at this time was by the mist. Some translations have spring in verse 6 that would come up from under the surface of the land and water the land. And some people have asked, does this verse teach that the earth didn't experience any rainfall until the flood in Noah's day in chapter 7? I don't know. (laughs) What I do know is that beginning at verse 7, we see how it is that God created his image bearers. As we saw last week from chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, that God did on day 6 of creation. Remember, in chapter 1, God does his creating by speaking his word. Over and over in chapter 1, we see, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. Here, though, in chapter 2 and verse 7, Moses' narrative reads like a, a potter molding clay with his hands. That's an illustration the Bible uses multiple times to speak of mankind's relationship toward God. With mankind as the clay and with God as the divine potter. Isaiah does it in Isaiah 29 and 45. Jeremiah does it in Jeremiah 18. Paul does it in Romans 9. And God is said here in verse 7 to have formed the man from the dust of the ground. Dust mixed with this water that's coming up and watering the earth would have been a kind of clay in the potter's hands, wouldn't it? And so God forms the man from dust and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Do you hear this personal, intimate, direct, hands-on nature of the creation of God's image bearers? forms the man and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life and the man becomes a living creature that calls to mind ezekiel 37 and the prophet's vision of a valley filled with dry bones here's a portion of ezekiel 37 and he said to me son of man can these bones live and i answered oh lord god you know Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. Just what we see in Genesis chapter 2. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And that's what happens in Ezekiel 37. The prophet Ezekiel prophesies, he preaches to the bones, they come together, flesh comes upon the bones and skin, but no breath yet, no life. And then Ezekiel 37.10 says, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And that breath in Ezekiel, and I think the breath here in Genesis 2 is meant to bring God the Holy Spirit to our minds. In Hebrew and in Greek, the words breath and spirit are often referred to by the same words. And so God is making the first man, Adam, 
in the same way that he makes the new man, the creation, by taking a dead lump of clay and breathing into it the breath of life by his spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 6, it's the spirit who gives life. That's why I asked you to pray in my email to you on Friday that this sermon would have the Holy Spirit's anointing because the Spirit is the means by which God breathes life into a man or a woman who's dead in trespasses and sins and gives to him or her eternal life and makes new creation. God saves by the Spirit empowering the preaching of the gospel and breathes into dead sinners the breath of life. And so what's going on here in Genesis 2, 7 isn't less than how God created the first human being, Adam, but there's so much more going on here too that pertains to new creation, to salvation. And so we've examined how it is that God created the first man and he's been forming his image bearers like that ever since david writes in psalm 139 that god formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb jeremiah records a word from the lord before i formed you god says to jeremiah before i formed you in the womb i knew you all of god's image bearers are formed and knitted just like we see with adam here then in verses 8 through 14, we see what kind of place God put his image bearer in. There's a garden in Eden, verse 8 says. And it was oriented to the east. That's a direction that's going to grow and grow in significance as the Bible's story goes on. And the garden in Eden must have been a magnificent place. Look what the text says. The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This garden was a a lovely place. It was a beautiful place. Its trees were pleasant to the sight and they were good for food. Those two things don't always coexist. I've seen good looking meals that didn't taste nearly as good as they looked. And I've had delicious food that you wouldn't want to put on your Instagram feed. But the trees in this garden were both beautiful and they bore delicious fruit. What a kindness of the Lord, isn't it? To have put man in a place like this. This language that Moses uses is supposed to land on us as abundant, overwhelming kinds of phrases. Every tree, all of them, pleasant to the sight and good for food not just one tree among a garden full of otherwise fruitless ugly trees no all of these trees beautiful and all of their fruit sumptuous and in this garden was the tree of life trees don't grant life in and of themselves but it seems as though the lord intended that the means by which he'd continue to cause mankind to receive life was through this tree it's not unusual as it turns out for the lord to grant life to his people this way it's by means of another tree isn't it one in golgotha that the second adam gave his people life through his death 
But Eden is a, a garden of abundance and beauty and life, and it's created by God for his people to dwell in and, in, and enjoy and to thrive in. And this garden also has in it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, verse 9 says. We'll hear more about this tree in a bit. And verses 10 through 14 continue to, to paint a picture of paradise. There's a river whereby the garden is watered, and that river diverges into four rivers. Two names we'll, we're familiar with, Tigris and Euphrates. And then two names of rivers that don't go by these names anymore, the Pishon and Gihon. There have been lots of folks who've theorized that because the, the modern-day Tigris and Euphrates have their sources in Armenia and Turkey, that Eden must have been in that part of the world, and that maybe the Pishon and Gihon correspond to two other rivers in that region. You see Cush mentioned in verse 13, that's an ancient name for the area of Africa where you'd find modern Sudan and Ethiopia. But I think trying to use the place names here to deduce where Eden was, in my mind, doesn't allow for the profound change to topography and river flow and all of the rest that took place during the global flood in Noah's day. And anyway, trying to identify where Eden was is beside the point. The point is, it was verdant, it was lush, there was plenty of water. And we're told there was gold, good gold, there was bdellium, that's a resin that has a very pleasing kind of aroma. And there was onyx stone, which is a precious gemstone. And so what Moses is telling us with all of these facts is that Eden was paradise. It was filled with beauty and filled with deliciousness and, and abounding in natural resources. And it's in this paradise that God, verse 15, places the man formed by God and breathed into to life by God. What kindness from the Lord. And then having placed the man in Eden, the Lord God gives the man a command. Now the first part of the command, I say is in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And you may say, well, that doesn't really sound like a command. But back in chapter 1 and verse 28, God does say as a command to mankind, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so that command to subdue earth and have dominion over it, God placing Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it here in verse 15 is part of that dominion command. But even more explicit in the realm of command is found in verses 16 and 17. And if you're familiar with the story of Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and I asked you, what is it that God commanded of Adam? You'd probably say, well, let me think now. God commanded Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, you'd be right. But I appreciate what Sinclair Ferguson pointed out. Notice in verse 16 that God commands Adam first the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. The command begins with offering to Adam all these trees. The loveliness and the 
pleasing nature of which we've already thought about. And that's important to observe. Because seeing that as part of God's command to Adam helps us to see what a generous and merciful and gracious God is the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth and formed Eden and placed his image bearer there. We'll see next week that that attribute of God's nature, his measureless generosity, gets called into question in a devastating way. So we'd all do well to meditate on the ways that the Bible reveals that God is not by nature withholding, but is by nature generous, desirous for his people to experience pleasures from his hand. The command we're more familiar with comes as we continue reading in verse 17. God says to Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. We've encountered this tree already back in verse 9. Commentators have sought to answer why God forbids eating from this tree. And the Bible isn't nearly as interested in answering our why questions as we are in asking them. I, I like John Calvin's answer. He says that the Lord wills that his people become wise by obedience to God, not by relying on ways to grow our own wisdom, but I don't know why it is that God forbids Adam's eating this tree, but he does. And then in the back half of verse 17, we see a warning for breaking God's command. God says to Adam, he mustn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for, because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Don't eat from that tree or you'll die, God says to the man. There's a Bible full of theology and doctrine in that sentence, as we'll begin to see next week. But I want you to see that the presence of a command here and then a warning for breaking that command are two elements that tell us that we're dealing in covenantal categories. God has a covenantal relationship with Adam. And the covenant that God is invoking here has come to be called by theologians the covenant of creation or the Adamic covenant. You have covenant partners, Adam and the Lord. You have a prohibition. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have a curse element, for in the day in which you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as we'll see next week from chapter 3 and verse 15, this covenant also contains a blessing element. Even the way God is referred to in our text, the Lord God. Do you see in your Bibles that Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? Even the way God's referred to here tells us we're in covenant territory. That word Lord, when it's all caps, is the word Yahweh. Based on Exodus chapter 6, the use of that name speaks to God's covenantal relationship to his people. This command is part of the covenant God makes with Adam. And so having made man, he gets his name, Adam, in verse 20. The name Adam comes from the Hebrew word for man, Adam. And so having made the man, the Lord God announces in verse 18 that this man isn't created to be alone. Do you see that in verse 18? 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now that truth that it's not good for the man that God has created to be alone comes to its fullest flower in realizing that when God saves a man or a woman, what does he do? He puts that person in the family of God. He puts that person in the congregation of the saints of all the ages. Genesis 2.18 isn't primarily a wedding verse. It's, ult it's ultimately a don't try to be a Christian without the church verse. And so God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now the helper fit for him, we see from verses 19 and 20, isn't going to come from the animal world. Adam surveyed them all as they were brought to him and they were named you'll note in verse 19 that similarly to mankind animals were also formed by god the bible doesn't regard plants as living things in the way that you might have learned they are in your classes even though plants do a kind of breathing and eating and reproducing only animals and people are considered living things possessing what the old testament calls the breath of life but don't flatten that out there's a hierarchy even then because only people are made in god's image and are given the mandate to exercise dominion over creation but verse 19 says that the lord god formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and then brought them to the man to see what he would call them years ago i made a note in my bible when i read this passage what fun what must it have been like for the animals to come to Adam and have him name them? And verse 19 says, whatever Adam named the animal, that was its name. You know, there are a lot of funny-looking animals. A lot of funny-looking people. A lot of funny-looking animals. I don't know what language Adam spoke, but I, I've kind of thought this week it would have been fun to be there when he saw a, a duck-billed platypus or an aardvark, or a giraffe. I've thought about that there are some of you couples in our church that have had to come up with five or six or seven names, but not for a whole animal kingdom. That's quite the lift. But after having surveyed the animal world, Adam knew that none of these was a helper fit for him. And so in verse 21, the Lord God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And it must have been a very deep sleep. Because while Adam slept, God took one of Adam's ribs. And with the rib, the Lord God made a helper fit for Adam. He made a woman. And having awakened Adam, he brings to Adam his bride. Verses 21 and 22 are such important verses. First, the Bible keeps coming back to these verses. They're foundational for other teaching we'll find later in the scriptures. Part of Paul's argument for why it's not women who are able to teach or to exercise authority in the church, but rather men, is because of this creation order. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet for, because, here's the grounding, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And so this event from Genesis 2 informs not only the earthly family unit, the home, but the heavenly family unit, the church. And each of those, by God's good design and creation, is to be led by men. That's what this verse, these passages teach us. But this event also heralds the gospel to us, doesn't it? Adam is overcome by a sleep so deep that God's able to do surgery on him. You might say that Adam's sleep is so deep that he's dead to the world. And when he awakens from the sacrifice offered with his own body, what does he awaken to? His beloved bride. Doesn't that resound with gospel echoes? The one who the Bible calls the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, he dies with wounds in his hands and his feet. And like Adam, his side. And only because of the sacrifice made with his body is his bride, the church, formed. The sacrifice of his body that paid our infinite sin debt toward God because our sins were accounted to Christ and his righteousness was accounted to us. And when Jesus awakens on the third day in his resurrection, what does he awaken to but his bride, the church? He awakens in the resurrection to the fact that in his death and resurrected life, he's done everything necessary for himself to have for himself a bride. And look at Adam's reaction in verse 23. It reads to me like Adam gets a look at Eve after having gone through everything else in creation and finding it insufficient to be for him the help that he was created to need. And Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha in Hebrew, because she was taken out of man, Ish in Hebrew. Adam's saying, at last, one for me, because she was made from me. Adam's thrilled with his bride. And he regards her as one flesh with him because she was made from him. Therefore, to take care of her is to take care of himself. And not to take care of her would be as foolish and insane as a person not taking care of himself. In the context of marriage, the Apostle Paul picks up on this and teaches no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And brothers and sisters, Adam's exaltation over Eve instructs us concerning Christ's exaltation over his bride, the church. The Bible says in Ephesians 5 that Jesus loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without 
blemish. That's what Jesus has done and is doing for his bride. And when the Apostle John says in Revelation 21 that he saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, immediately following that we read, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The one who occupies the throne in Revelation is the second Adam. And after dying for his bride and sanctifying her and having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, the Lord Jesus Christ says in Revelation 21 with a loud voice, his version of Adam's at last. Oh, church, you are more beloved by your heavenly bridegroom than you even let yourself dare to imagine. And one day you won't have to imagine it. You'll see it and you'll hear it and you'll experience it with all your senses, no longer dulled by sin. And God instructs us concerning the marriage relationship in verse 24. I say that it's instruction from God because in Matthew 19, Jesus answers the Pharisees who come asking him about divorce. Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, exactly what we find in Genesis 2, 24. Jesus goes on to say, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. But note the therefore here at Genesis 2, 24. Because of what's taught in 2, 23, this one flesh relationship between husband and wife, that's entered into covenantally. One flesh isn't synonymous with sexual intimacy. Because of what's taught in 2.23, this one flesh relationship is supposed to result, verse 24 tells us, in the husband and wife regarding each other supremely. More than mother and father. And this one flesh relationship hear me, especially married couples, ought to be as unthinkable to try and dissolve in divorce as it would be unthinkable for you to try and tear a piece of flesh from yourself. And then, having told the remarkable true story of the creation of mankind now in detail, Moses leaves us with this magnificent statement in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I can't think of anything that would make Eden more Edenic, more like paradise than what we read in our text this morning. It's a place that's filled with beauty and with pleasure it's a place where no one dwells alone without fellowship and community. It's a place where man dwells with 
God, a place where people are both naked and unashamed. It's a place of plenty and provision. It's a place of joy and innocence. And you could say, boy, I I wish the Bible ended there. And so by way of application, let me say to you that the Bible does end there. Now it takes 66 books and the death and resurrection of no one less than the Son of God to get there, but the Bible does end there. Go with me to Revelation chapter 22. That's the last book of the Bible, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. The book of Revelation chapter 22. In Revelation 22, we're back in a kind of garden. It's a place with trees anyway. And in that garden is a river. Verse 2 of Revelation 22 says it's the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in this garden, there's a tree of life, just like back in Eden. And in this garden, mankind dwells with God face to face. You see verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Can you hear what verse 4 is saying to you? They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads as a way of saying, these belong to me. They are my beloved bride and there's not going to be a sun or a lamp because jesus is going to be the light there but it will be a place where mankind exercises the dominion we were created to exercise you see that at the end of verse five they will reign forever and ever and brothers and sisters i want to say to you as we seek to apply genesis 2 4 to 25 that this is where we are headed God has done and is right now doing everything to get us back to the place he created us to be, which is with him in paradise. When you know that you're headed to your favorite vacation spot in the world after work on Friday, you can endure whatever phone calls, or memos, or Zoom meetings, or emails, or hard conversations come your way because your eyes are on heading to paradise, wherever paradise is for you. I'm saying to you, live like that. Live like Jesus' return is Friday at 5 p.m., though marvelously it could be even sooner than that. And then multiply your favorite vacation spot by about 14 quadrillion. And you're beginning to think about the day when we live in his presence where there's fullness of joy. And when we experience pleasures forevermore because of the one at God's right hand. Brothers and sisters, we're getting back to the garden. And I want to say to you that if you really believe that's coming, 
if you really believe that each moment gets you closer to that day, each moment gets you closer to the day when God will have you dwell in paradise with himself, that really will, brothers and sisters, change how you live and think and respond to your frustrations and your disappointments and your sadnesses. How could it not? That news is so good. Dwelling eternally in paradise with the God who so lovingly and lavishly provides for his people. Finally, perfectly reflecting his image so that all creation will see you and give glory to God. If that news isn't enough to take the edge off of life's discouragement and rage inducers, examine yourself. Where we started, we saw it was magnificent. That's where God's getting us back to. Thinking on that is is actually an effective antidote to your disinterest or your boredom with life that you self-medicate with pornography or too much video gaming or too much food. Thinking on when you will dwell with God in paradise is actually an effective antidote to your feeling of being out of control that you self-medicate with being hard to be around and prickly and defensive and prideful and controlling and quick-tempered. This marvelous, eternal future, thinking on it, meditating on it, longing for it, praying for it, is actually a really effective antidote right now to your despondency and your despair and your depression that you self-medicate by withdrawing or with abusing alcohol or with just resigning yourself to the belief that Yeah, the gospel is going to be powerful in that life, but it's not enough to do anything about my emotional and mental health now. Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying to you is that we're getting back to Eden, to paradise when we will see his face. And it's even better because the Eden we're getting back to is a place where serpents can't ever get into again. We really are going there, brothers and sisters. And that changes everything about every day for you. It ought to. Meditate on it until it does. And to my unbelieving friends, this same chapter, Revelation 22, says of the wonderful, eternal city where God dwells with his people in paradise. Verse 15. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. They're outside the garden. And we'll see more clearly next week just what a terrifying reality that is. But just know that to be outside this place eternally is to be, Revelation 21 says, in the lake of fire. It's not just to be outside the garden, just outside the hedgerows. It's to be cast away completely and eternally from where God dwells with his people in blessed and joyful fellowship in paradise. (coughs) 
you who are outside of Christ, whether you're a student or someone in the workaday world, a retiree, whether you're hearing the gospel for the first time or the 10,000th time, you don't have a dream vacation awaiting. You're on death row. And your execution is scheduled. The terrifying thing, though, is that you don't know when that date is. It's set, but you don't know it. And that's an awful way to live, isn't it? The list I read to you, the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, that's an all-encompassing list. Every kind of sinner can be found in that list, including every single one of you who aren't Christians today. If you've ever been sinfully angry with someone, Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, that makes you guilty of murder, uh, of murder so you're a murderer. If you've ever lusted for someone to whom you're not married, Jesus says that makes you an adulterer in Matthew's gospel. There's your sexual immorality. If you don't worship God, that means you worship yourself or something else. Now you're an idolater. If you're falsely professing faith in Christ, believing you're saved or saying you're saved when you aren't, there's practicing falsehood. None of us escapes this list in one way or another or in multiple ways. And so I'm pleading with you who are outside of Christ. I'm pleading with you. Don't go into eternity outside of the place where God dwells with his people. Forsake your sins. Ask this God who, who provides so abundantly. Ask him to be merciful to you. Ask him to save you. Ask him to adopt you into his family. Ask him to forgive your sins by giving you faith in his son's death and resurrection for sinners just like you. He's merciful. And ask him earnestly with a recognition of the danger your soul is in. You who are outside of Christ, I plead with you. Ask God to save you today. Ask him to save you right now. Brothers and sisters, what we have in Genesis 2, 4 through 25 is the creation of Adam and Eve, God's first image bearers. And in their creation, the Lord God reveals that it has been his eternal, sovereign good pleasure to lovingly care for his image bearers, to provide for us abundantly, to dwell with us in paradise as fulfillment of all of his covenant promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. who is the true and better Adam, who keeps faith with you and through his death and resurrection wins for himself a bride, the church. Please, by the preaching of the word and your spirit, do good to our souls today. We ask in Jesus' name.